We'll turn, if you would, with me this morning to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 34. Mark 10, 17 through 34. I want you to imagine just for a minute, perhaps that someone a little older than all the youth sitting in front of us was here. He was clean, successful, well-dressed, had a good reputation, was articulate, had all the qualities that you look for in a leader. I think sometimes the church, just like everybody else, longs for this ideal individual to be the ideal candidate for a convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mouth waters at just the right guy who we think could do so much and accomplish so much for the church. If we could just see him converted, wow, wouldn't that be something? problem is this. There is no ideal candidate for the gospel. That person, even if he looks clean, successful, with a good reputation, articulate in all these ways, yet on the inside he is rotten to the core. Follow along as I read about one of these individuals, the rich young ruler found in the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this time in Mark, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 10. And as Jesus was sitting on his journey, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed, <coughs> excuse me, were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is a portion of God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It is true. It is lasting. It is unchangeable. Lord, it shall stand forever. I pray that the words spoken here, the things done here, the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, that they might be pleasing in your sight. Lord, if they are not consistent with your word, let them pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope this passage hits home because we have, in the last few decades, been the wealthiest and freest society that this world perhaps has ever known. If any country, warts and all, should be a candidate for God's blessings in, based on its wealth, its prestige, its influence, then the U.S. of A. seems to be a prime candidate. But what did we do with all these benefits? Did, did the riches and the wealth that we acquired and all of the wonderful blessings we have lead us to be a nation that follows God? Well, here's where we are right now. Broken homes due to sin. Rampant. Sexual perversions on a scale unknown to most other societies. Corruption rising amongst our leaders to incredible heights. If what we were to analyze our society and compare it to generations past, I would say on the level, we are dumber, less moral, more unorganized, more divided, and lazier than our forefathers. Not only can we no more save our society by a leader, remember we're voting this year, we cannot save our society by a human leader, so we cannot even save ourselves. When I say these things, I don't mean every individual person in this room is dumber or lazier than their forefathers. I'm saying this as a generalization. But here is Jesus' call. His call is not to be the most intelligent, the most successful, the most wealthy, the most wonderful, the most and best of everything. Jesus' call is this, to forsake everything and to follow him. In fact, we find out from this passage a couple of things that hinder salvation. One is self-righteousness. The other is wealth. Self-righteousness and wealth can hinder salvation. And yet by the end of this passage, we understand that God's plan accomplished salvation. First of all, self-righteousness hinders salvation. Here again is this prime candidate, isn't it? Matthew tells us he was a young man. And living in a society that loves youth, I think we understand how valuable that can be. In fact, I've been told many times in our church, if we don't get a little bit younger, our church is going to close. And yet, for some reason, it keeps growing. I don't know why, except by the grace of God. Luke tells us that this man was a ruler. 
That is, he had influence. He was someone who was successful by this stage in life. He's not someone who's out there just partying or doing other things. He's someone with a reputation now who has influence over others. We all have that ambition sometimes, don't we? We're also told by all three gospel writers he is wealthy. He has money. In other words, he either comes from wealth, that's a possibility, or he's earned that wealth. It seems to be that this guy is a go-getter. And so he approaches Jesus, and he says to him, good teacher. Now, first of all, you have to understand this is an unusual way to address Jesus. This indicates that this man has some kind of preconceived idea of who or what Jesus is. In fact, there is no extant literature in Greek that indicates, or in the times of Jesus, indicates that this was a normal way to address anybody. They just didn't call teachers good teacher those days. It's not like, you know, a, a, a servant uh, in the old British idea would say, what can I do for you, my good sir? No, the, the term good was not used in this way. It was an unusual way to address Jesus. So not only do you think this guy, hey, he's young, he's successful, he's influential, but he even might have a good concept of who Jesus is. And Jesus addresses this to begin with. Of all the things, he's asking him probably the most, one of the most important questions that anybody asks, and that is about eternity. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't start there. He starts with this phrase, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why is Jesus saying this? Why doesn't he just answer the question? Well, because he's addressing a very important feature of what it means to inherit eternal life. And that is an introduction here to the divinity of Jesus. He's indicating here, first of all, something about this man because Jesus probably knows what he's about to say and what kind of discussion he's about to have with this guy. And he's saying about this man, you're not good. And he says, basically, everybody you encounter is not good. On the other hand, he's saying there's only one we can apply that term good to. And, of course, this means morally good. That is, someone without sin, someone perfect in all ways, someone who has goodness in his character as well as his actions. And he says, no one except God is good. But notice he did not say, do not call me good. He's actually preparing this young man to understand that he's correct in calling him good teacher, that Jesus really is God in the flesh. But here is this good inquirer. Remember the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember his background. This good inquirer is the good guy with youth. He has everything going for him as far as age is concerned. Luke tells us he has influence. He's a ruler in society. We also see because of the way he approached Jesus. Notice this was not the approach of someone who was staid and just a casual he is urgently coming to Jesus, running to him, and kneeling before him on the ground. So he has a sense of urgency about this. And he has an awareness of eternity. 
You know, it's interesting. This is not unusual. We all have that awareness built into us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. But it also says this, yet that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here's a guy, he has everything according to society, what, what the world thinks is important, age, influence, wealth, all those things, and yet he's concerned about eternity. And again, I have to say, churches, their mouths water over somebody like this. Not only this, but listen to the conversation. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, here's a definition of being good. Have you followed all those commandments? And here's what the guy says. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The youth here, indication here from the time of by my bar mitzvah. I have kept all of these rules. Now, on the one hand, you say to yourself, well, sure you have. I remember, especially, this always brings back to mind, a little girl in our Bible school one year, many years ago, and my wife and I were teaching this class together, and we had a little experiment uh, where you would, have, uh, you would have each student in your class write down a sin that they had committed. And then you had made this little uh, con concoction with water and some chemicals, and they would dip that uh, slate of paper into the glass, and the ink would be wiped off the piece of paper so that when they got it out, it was uh, without that sin anymore. It was an illustration of what God does for us when we believe in Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away. And this little girl said, well, I've never sinned. And if you know anything about my wife, Jennifer, you know, this kind of irks her a little bit. So she had, had to say, well, surely you've done this. Oh, no, I haven't lied. No, I haven't disobeyed my parents. And she said, I haven't done anything. We couldn't get her to write anything down on paper. Kind of ruined the, the illustration. So in one sense, we think, how can this guy says he's never sinned? Maybe he wasn't there when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount where he said it's not just that you haven't literally committed adultery, it's whether or not you've lusted after a woman in your heart. Or maybe you haven't literally committed murder, but it's if you have thought bad thoughts about your brother, even calling him fool in your heart. In other words, it's not just the literal sense of these sins. In fact... We're told in Scripture that these commandments that God puts on us, they're not that difficult. That's what God says to the Israelites when he gives them these laws. On the outside, maybe he hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't murdered, maybe he hadn't stolen things. Now, honoring your parents, that's a little more nebulous, it's not quite as uh, literal here, uh, but, but here... Maybe he was a very, very moral person, and he believed that he had kept those commandments. So let's take him at face value. He has good morals. Jesus here, when he looks at him, he even says here he loved him. In other words, here's an understanding. This guy with a sense of urgency, with an awareness of the commandments of God, trying to live a moral life, asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus had compassion for him. He loved him. But the love here is not stopping with loving him for the kind of person he has been. 
The love here tells the truth. You lack one thing. In other words, he, he listened to the conversation up to this point. He sees everything that this guy is and everything that he's asking. And he then, because he loved him, put his finger on the most difficult part of his life, his riches. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He's just repeating Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's what the disciples had done at this point. They've left everything behind. They followed Jesus. He says, if you want to be a disciple, be like the disciples here. Leave your boats, leave your fishing implements, leave your tax collector's booth, leave your zealotry, whatever it is that these disciples had. Leave those things behind and come and follow me. You would think this guy who's urgent about eternal life, he wants these things. You would think of all the people, wealthy, influential, whatever, a go-getter, you would think, okay, I'll go do it. But he's the one guy in the Gospels, one, that goes away discouraged from the Lord. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is a distressed departure. He's in great distress now. He thought that there was something he could do to inherit eternal life. In other words, maybe he could give the, the best philanthropic gift to society. Perhaps he could do something to please Jesus. Perhaps there was something that he could do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, okay, you want to do things? Make it all about me. He was unable to leave everything. Unable to do it. It meant a lot to him, these riches. And because of that, he was unable to follow Jesus. Jesus is pretty harsh at times. Sometimes he says to people, hey, I need to go wait until my father is dead so I can bury him. And he says, you know, that's never going to happen. If you have to wait for that kind of thing, you don't really, you're not really interested in following me. Here he's saying to a man who seems to be a seeker, that person who is seeking the gospel, seeking Christ, seeking God, he seems to be that seeker. But here's the problem. We've tried that in American church, haven't we? The church has sought for the right formula to meet the needs of the inquirer, and it led to what was called the seeker-sensitive church the seeker-sensitive movement. So churches across the country, particularly large churches, would build all their programs and all their church to meet the needs of those who were seeking God, like this rich young ruler. They were going out and they were getting together great stages and music and all kinds of opportunity to please the people as they came in the doors so that they could get just the right atmosphere for that person to just melt into the arms of Jesus. was a massive failure. Why? Was this rich young ruler seeking Jesus? No. He was seeking what he could do to save himself. 
What is it with my intelligence, my money, my influence that I can do to save myself? Or what can I do for the kingdom? Not what can God do for me, but what I can do for God. In fact, the church in America, seeking out the seeker-sensitive movement, forgot the scriptures. They forgot Psalms 14 and 53. They forgot Romans 3 that says there's no one righteous. And it even says there's no one who seeks God. So the church built up this entire seeker-sensitive movement in opposition to the very scripture that they claim to promote and believe. There are no seekers. Let's be honest, those of us in this room who wandered away from the Lord or who never heard the gospel, when you were living your life before coming to Jesus Christ, was it that you were just seeking Jesus Christ all these years? Or was it this that just that all of a sudden God got a hold of you and you recognized your unworthiness you recognized your hopelessness, and God came to you rather than you coming to him. You see, here is the problem. Our self-righteousness hinders salvation. How many times have I, as a pastor, heard people say, well, I'm a good person? You know, you go out and you evangelize, and you're going to encounter some people. It's not as much today as it used to be, but it used to be most people that you would encounter in our society would say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm, I'm good to my neighbors. I'm good to my family. I have philanthropic tendencies. You know, I have good morals, all this stuff. I'm a good person. You know, everything looks good. But the problem is, underlying that is, Scripture tells us no one's good, no one's righteous, no, not one. When we have self-righteousness, that actually becomes a barrier to believing in Jesus Christ. In other words, even though we love people enough to tell them they're desperate sinners who cannot save themselves, when you tell that to somebody, they might say, well, how dare you say that about me? I think I'm good enough. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And yet, what does Scripture say? Our righteousness is like filthy rags. When we prepare and present to God all the good things we've done, to even, even to, to present the goodness of his law, he looks at those and he says, what is that garbage? We need something more. The other thing that hinders salvation is our wealth. Jesus looked at his disciples, this is verse 23, and he said to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The more wealth you have, the more you think you can buy things. The more wealth you have, the more comfortable you are so that you don't think you need things. And here's the shock of the disciples. It says the disciples were amazed at his words. They were probably amazed in part because of the way he treated this rich young ruler. Here was a guy that would look good in their camp. Here was a guy who would be the great 13th disciple, right? And he had youth on his side. He had wealth. He had influence. He had all those things. He had that urgency. He was asking questions about eternity. This was the right candidate for the gospel. And Jesus said, go sell all you have and follow me. How dare he treat that man like that? They were shocked. They were shocked, first of all, at the barrier of riches. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. In 1 Timothy 6, 10, Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. 
Money is a hindrance. Why is it that the gospel is losing, in a sense, in America? No, it's not losing. We know God's gospel is stronger, more powerful than even riches. It's amazing that so many Americans actually come to Christ. It's amazing. It's God's grace that Americans, the wealthiest of the wealthy worldwide in history and geography, have come to Jesus Christ. Should we be shocked and surprised that so many don't? It's a barrier. He repeats it. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You see, it's not just the barrier of the riches. It's the barrier of the rich person's heart. This guy probably was very moral. He probably was more moral than I am. He probably had all kinds of things going for him that I don't have. He probably worked harder. He probably was more conscientious with his time. He probably did all kinds of things more than I do, more than you do. He probably was really one of those type A personalities, a go-getter, who thought that there was something he could do to inherit eternal life. But the problem was his heart. What can I do? Not, I can do nothing. Please help me. And here's the greater shock of the disciples. When Jesus says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. In other words, this is a greater shock. It's indicating the impossibility of entering the kingdom. Now, I'd like to say I can be really smart up here and talk about this little gate in Jerusalem that was called this gate and everything. The problem is that this didn't take place. This gate did not exist like this in Jesus' time. It wasn't until the 9th century A.D. that there's any mention of this kind of thing of a gate where only a person could go through and you couldn't get a camel through and all those. He's actually literally talking about a camel and a needle. The camel was the biggest animal in their understanding here in this society. It's like taking the biggest animal and taking a little needle and trying to push that animal through a needle. Ludicrous. And he says here, it's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's an impossibility of entering the kingdom for a rich person. In fact, he's saying here, not just for a rich person. It says here, they were exceedingly astonished. They said to them, then who can be saved? In other words, they understand the implications of this is way beyond the wealthy person. It means who in the world could possibly be saved? It's an impossibility for man to save himself. He can't do it. I know I can't put a camel through the eye of a needle. I don't know about you. I don't think I can. So then he says, this is the only way. With man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, the only way is God's way. You can't do anything to inherit the kingdom. You can't pay enough money. You can't do enough good works. You can't have the right connections. You might be able to get a job by networking, but you can't go to heaven by networking. It's only God's way. And this is the way of Jesus and the gospel. Notice what he says here. Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. <laughs> Leave it to Peter to just say, well, we're better than that guy. 
You know, they've already been arguing about who's the best in the kingdom of God. And, you know, Peter always opens his mouth here. And so he said, well, look, we've done that. And glory to God. What did it take? An effectual calling by Jesus Christ himself for that to take place. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. This is the way of Jesus and the gospel. In other words, whatever you leave behind, whether it's your riches, whether it's your family, and we all know sometimes you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your family will disown you. Your family will not understand you. Your friends may say, you're not the fun guy I thought you were before. Or they might say, I don't understand what, what you are from what you are now because your life is different. Your friends may leave you. Your property may be gone. Your freedom in some circumstances may be gone, even as we look at persecuted people worldwide. He says, when you leave these things, it's for the one way, for Jesus and the gospel. You know, there are people who focus more on the blessings. For this is what he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and an age to come, eternal life. There are those who will say, you come to Jesus, everything is going to be peace and prosperity. The smiling, benign, smooth, cultured pastor with promises of peace and prosperity for potential followers. If you talk to people in my church, you'll know that I'm not that person. I talk about sin a lot, and I talk about our inability to save ourselves, and I also talk about the fact that we're not called to be comfortable and prosperous. In fact, I think one of my jobs in this age is to remind the American church, we will face difficult times. We must be prepared. For the American church has a Laodicean problem. In Revelation chapter 3, the angel says to the churches through John's pen, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If you listen to my preaching enough, you know that I told you many times that if you're like me, you're a dead, dreadful, terrible sinner, you cannot do anything to please God apart from God's grace. And here is a way to be reminded, it is a way of blessings. I think one of the great blessings we often overlook, how do we get brothers and sisters and mothers and so forth? It's because he brings us into the church that becomes our family. We have true brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the blessing. In fact, Scripture even reminds us that we are closer to fellow Christians than even our blood relatives. So we have those blessings. And if you know, if people follow God's commandment, you also gain great riches. You know, I'm surprised and amazed at this little church, how much it can give, the power of giving. And it's not because they're, they're the best people in the world. It's because they're sinners called into grace and to be in God's family and to live in such a way that we're a blessing to each other. But notice the other thing that it brings is persecutions. How important Jesus was saying this to those disciples who left everything to follow him. You know, what is it? Did, did they gain a whole bunch of beachfront property? 
Did, did they gain all kinds of wealth and influence? The majority of them gained a martyr's death. The majority of them gained imprisonment and suffering and pain. It's not that these things are good in and of themselves. They're a result of following Jesus. And then he says in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now this is a consistent teaching. He's reminding them perhaps back to when they're saying who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, all these things. Consistency in Jesus' teaching. Repetition is a teacher's dream here. But also a reminder, this is the way without the world's hierarchy. And notice their reaction. I originally was going to completely divide 31 from 32 for my last point in the sermon, but then I looked at 32 again, and I thought, why were they on the road amazed and afraid? It's because of this. This is the way of fear and shock. This is the realization that it does cost something to follow Jesus. It costs the things of this world. If you have great wealth, God may ask you. It doesn't mean he's always going to ask you. This is not a, a normative thing that God is asking everybody who has wealth to get rid of all of it. Uh, that would be chaos. But he's reminding this individual in this circumstance, his idol and the idol of his heart that kept him from following Jesus was wealth. So he had to be willing to give that up to follow Jesus. He may ask you to give up your wealth. He may ask you to give up your athletic ability. He may ask you to give up your reputation in the world around us. He may ask you to give up a great job. He may ask you to give up all kinds of things in order to follow him. And when you understand the gravity of following Jesus... That it's not just, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus and everything is going to be hunky-dory. I'm going to follow Jesus. Yes, I'm going to get all kinds of blessings. Some of them are eternal blessings. Some of them are blessings in this life. But it's also going to cost me things. It's going to cost me a world that looks at a Christian and says, you guys are right-wing nuts. It's going to cost me a situation where I might be the only one in a class who stands up for what is right in the world against all the pressures of the day. It might be that you have a friend that says, if you believe this and trust this, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. It's costly. And this brings fear and shock. So Jesus repeats for the third time to all of them, for the fourth time to Peter, James, and John, he repeats to them what's going to take place on this little journey that they're taking. We're going up to Jerusalem. Up again, Jerusalem is elevated. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. We could look at each one of these as the first time in Mark that Gentiles are mentioned as one of the agencies of death and so forth. This is a plan of betrayal and suffering. They don't get it. They still don't get it. But he's repeating these things. Why? Because he's trying to tell them and show them the way of salvation. Unlike this rich young ruler who thought he could do something to earn his way to heaven, he's telling these people, I'm doing something to save you. This is the plan of death and resurrection. You know, there are pilgrims across the world. We think they're crazy in our society. 
But there are pilgrims across the world who are doing what they can to earn their salvation, sometimes by crawling up on their knees some steps up into a temple, by throwing money at just the right place, or perhaps it's in our society by reading their Bible just enough, by giving enough money, even sacrificially, by saying the right prayer or recitations. If only we do things, then God will be kind to us and possibly get us into heaven. It's endless, all the things that we could do to try and earn our salvation. But God's way for this is for his son. Not for us to save ourselves, but for his son to save us, to earn life, Jesus did, with his perfect obedience to the law and will of God. Jesus, in submitting to God's plan, has true righteousness. His righteousness is not filthy rags because it was perfect and without sin. By his substitutional atonement on the cross, that's what it's referring to, by his substitutional atonement, he has accomplished the salvation of those who trust in him because God gives us his righteousness when we have given him our sin and the death that it earns. You see, you and I simply cannot save ourselves. No matter what people say, God does not save those who help themselves. It's not a Bible verse. You cannot save yourself or help yourself. You and I simply can't do it. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can purchase that will bring us eternal life. The second thing, there is no ideal candidate for the gospel. You can't tell by somebody walking in the door whether or not he's going to be saved by the preaching of the gospel. You cannot by even having dinner with somebody and getting to know him over a space of 17 years you can't know whether or not that is the prime candidate for the gospel because it takes the power of God to call us and convict us of sin by his Holy Spirit and the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And also we cannot save everyone. Can't save everyone. I wish I could. You know, I wish I could save everyone in my own family. I wish I could save everyone in my neighborhood. I wish I could have everybody in, in this building be someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that I will see them in heaven. But I know the reality. Even some of you have professed these things and lived these things as if you do believe. Some of you still do not. I can't save you. But I do know this. Jesus says, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. That's the gospel. He is the possibility maker. When salvation is impossible for man, God has made it possible through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf. That's your one hope in life for eternity. If you're, if you're that rich young ruler, if you're that person this morning saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do. But there is someone who's done something for his people. And that's the Lord Jesus who not only denied the riches of this life, he denied his very life so that we could have life if we trusted him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made the impossible possible. 
Lord, there's going to be a lot of fanfare, a lot of wealth and prestige shown this evening. Our world is fascinated with idolatry in many forms. But Lord, by your grace, you have given us not an idol to worship, but your son who suffered and bled and died for us. Lord, help us. We need it. In Jesus' name.